So the reading will be from Isaiah 61. If you have a Bible and want to follow along in your own version, then now's your time to look that up. In the Old Testament, it's also on the screen um, to follow along with. So the words I'm about to read are normally more familiar to us because the words that Jesus took and Jesus said um, he applied them to himself, but like it was his manifesto for what he was about and what he wanted to do. So it follows that it's our manifesto too. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Father, I pray that these words um, will come alive to us as Andy speaks to us. I pray that your spirit will be on him and continue to flow through him as he's prepared and as he speaks. Um, prepare our hearts to hear what you have to say. Amen. Amen. <coughs> thank, thank you, Kirsty. Good morning. It's great to see people back if you've been away and uh, uh, people who are new. Fantastic to be uh, together. And uh, last week we uh, started uh, over in Bourneville. We were looking at Psalm 1, and I believe Tim uh, unpacked Psalm 1 here as well. That great passage uh, that talks about trees planted by streams uh, of living water. Uh, trees that are fruitful, trees that are not withering, but thriving, flourishing, prospering. And it's a metaphor for life um, uh, as to how God wants us to live life, connected into him, not conforming, uh, as it says in those early verses of Psalm 1, but actually standing against the waves of the world, uh, taking God's word to delight in our hearts and living those words out uh, as well. And Isaiah 61 speaks of the transforming and the renewing work of God. Um, this is a prophecy that would look to his Messiah, Jesus, who uh, would speak these words later on, as Kirsty said, um, his chosen servant, but also uh, as his people, we're his chosen servants as the body of Christ uh, in our world. And uh, again, like trees, there's that, that metaphor here of an oak of righteousness. And it speaks about that great oak of righteousness uh, as being a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. That is what they will be called. That is what we will be called not just thriving for ourselves, but making a difference in our world. As we rebuild, it says in verse four, the ancient ruins, as we restore the places long devastated. And as we've looked at our pictures and very vivid images this week of uh, parts of the Caribbean devastated by hurricanes, um, we see that very, very clearly, what, what devastation looks like. We've seen cities and towns devastated across uh, Syria and uh, northern Iraq uh, as well. Again, vivid images of what devastation looks like. Uh, and yet, it's more than just the physical. It's the spiritual, it's the emotional, it's every aspect of life that needs rebuilding and restoring. Jeremiah 29, verse 7, the Old Testament prophet writes to uh, those in exile in Babylon, and he says to them this, he says, Seek the peace and prosperity uh, of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray for it, 
because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And the word there is, uh, is shalom, God's well-being, God's salvation, God's wholeness, everything of God's blessing coming to that. And uh, we read of, uh, in the Old Testament book of Daniel how Daniel and his friends find themselves in that very exile and they decide they're not gonna conform to the ways uh, of that culture, but they're gonna transform it from within. They're gonna be part of it, but they're gonna transform things from within as they live out their faith courageously uh, and seek to transform it through, through that and bring God's shalom, God's well-being and blessing to the place where they find themselves. And we find those books encouraging uh, into our own lives. And Isaiah 61 reminds us of some of the, the rewords of the Bible. Rebuild, restore, renew. And a rewords clarify the Bible's position towards evil and all that is broken in our world. I think anybody in this world, whether you believe uh, in God or not, we look at our world and we think there must be something wrong somewhere <coughs> with it. And the rewords have to do with returning to something to uh, restore, restoring something to its original intention, uh, whether it's a person, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a project, whether it's the environment, whatever it might be, returning it to its original stated intention in a positive way. And uh, the Bible teaches us that, that God had an original intention, that things were meant to be working well, um, and yet it's the world we find ourselves in post uh, the fall of Genesis chapter three and etc. And he's renewing all of those things. And we come to the New Testament and there's loads of rewords in the New Testament. We have words like reconcile, uh, where the relationship between God and man is, is reconciled. It's put right um, through Jesus. We have words like redeem, redemption, where the, the, the ransom is paid to set people free. Uh, and it describes how Jesus has paid that price for the sins of the world to set us free. We have resurrection, uh, where God the Father raises Jesus Christ from the dead to prove that there is something beyond, that it's not just this life. But all of these words are not just words that give us assurance as Christians that there's a heaven and everything will be okay in the future. They're actually words that are to summarize the role that we have as individuals and as a church in society. Uh, so Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 says we're to be ambassadors of reconciliation. So not only are we reconciled with God, but actually we're to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We're to bring reconciliation to others uh, as we share our faith with others and as we help people to forgive one another as well. Uh, we're to help people find freedom in all that oppresses and to see that redemption come. And uh, we're to live as resurrected people, um, as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, the old me is dead. The new me is alive. The new me has been resurrected and so therefore we live differently uh, as a result of that. We've been fundamentally changed, freely given Christ's righteousness. We've been restored. We've been brought from death into life as believers. We've been made new. We're being transformed ourselves. But when we become Christians, followers of Jesus, we're not just saved from something, um, from, uh, from sin and from death and from separation from God but we're saved for something. We're saved to make a difference in this world as well. We're to live out the resurrection life uh, even before we get to heaven and allow Jesus to live his life through us. That's kind of what the New Testament teaches us. And uh, these rewords remind us that God's original intention was very good, okay, in his own words. Leslie Newbigin puts it like this. He says, our world is fallen but redeemed. 
and we are here to be agents of restoration. And he goes on and talks about how separation and distance from the world is actually a false indicator of Christian faithfulness. We're actually to be up close and engage with our world, uh, but live differently. We're not to conform to it, but we are to transform it. And uh, the book of Genesis introduces us to how God is the creator and how he, 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 he makes us to, to fill his world and to form his world that he's, he's already begun. Um, and uh, to do that well, to, to bring good into the world actually requires us to think a bit. We need to have good understanding because you don't have good intentions and make a real mess of it. Okay, we've probably all done that. Um, and also then find good action that makes a difference. So we do have to think clearly about it and then we have to deeply engage with the things that will really work when and where we can. And the question arises, probably for each one of us, is can we take the brokenness of uh, our world seriously and still believe there is hope? Or do we just get overwhelmed by it all? You know, can we make it more than just a feeling to make things better, but can we actually live in a way that actually makes uh, a meaningful difference uh, in people's lives and in the world's lives. Back in 1736, Benjamin Franklin started the first ever fire brigade. It was a voluntary fire brigade, and he just saw the need for it. He thought, do you know what we could do with a fire brigade? This would be a good idea to put fires out. We think we're a fairly good idea. We think we kind of it's carried on a little bit. And it was a volunteer force, I think, in Philadelphia. Today, we have millions of nonprofit organizations run by volunteers, run by all sorts of people um, that make a significant difference across our towns, our cities, and our world. And it all started with somebody having a go, starting an idea, and starting to change things. Because it's local people meeting local needs and solving local problems that actually changes things. Uh, we live in a society, and we're very quick to blame the government or the council for everything that goes wrong and we've got a list of those probably already. Um, And secondly, we also look to them to remedy everything. But actually, we're not to be part of the problem, we're to be part of the solution uh, in our society. Um, Three years ago, you'll remember the Ebola virus breakouts uh, across the world, and the the fear of how quickly that was spreading, and the, the kind of the horribleness, the vileness of the disease that it caused. And yet, when you read the stories, and many, many people have all, all different walks of life went to work, but so many of the stories and the care workers and the medics that went into these situations were Christians. Many of them were going and becoming sick themselves, dying as a result, um, and were people of faith walking to those situations. And throughout history, there are instances where Christians uh, have run towards and not away from the misery of others. Even with refugees recently, there's been so many Christians that have been involved in that sort of ministry. Um, I read uh, just this week, um, back in 250 AD, between then the next 20 years, there was a terrible plague across the Roman Empire called the Plague of Cyprian, which was named after the guy who documented and wrote about it. And it coincided with uh, an empire-wide persecution of Christians by um, uh, the Emperor Decius. In fact, he blamed the Christians for this plague. But that was undermined by two things. Firstly, the Christians were dying of it as well. And secondly, Christians were, cared, were caring for the victims of the plague, um, even though they were dying. And they were caring for their, their non-Christian, unbelieving neighbors as well, unlike everybody else. We read about the first century AD Ephesus, 
um, a pagan town in the first century with temple worship of Artemis. It dominated the whole time, one of the ancient Greek gods. And as part of the temple worship, they had um, a, a fireball that used to keep all the hot coals in the fire, and it was part of their worship of, of their false gods. But also, it was a basic necessity for human life. So if you want to keep warm, you need some fire. If you want to cook, you need some fire. Uh, cleaning, all the rest of it. And so for the people, if the, their fire went out at home, they would have to go to the temple to get new hot coals um, to bring home. And there was a charge from the priests for that, not surprisingly. Um, and that was apparently an appeasement of the gods, the pagan gods. And if you didn't go to the temple for your fire, then the gods would be after you and you'd face all the horrible consequences that might come your way. And so the fire keepers of this ancient temple were ancient Ephesus equivalent of our gas and electricity supplies with dual fuel tariff all rolled into one there. And if you got it, and they had a, a monopoly on it, a complete monopoly. If you went to anywhere else, then the gods would be after you. Now, archaeology's shown, apparently, that they've unearthed that the Christians in Ephesus lived differently. They would take hot coals, uh, they'd see a home that didn't have fire, and they'd take their own hot coals round to that fire in their own fireballs that they made. And that simple act of love made a powerful statement. Firstly, it was uh, provided saving fire, fire for the people who perhaps couldn't have paid the temple price. Okay, it deprived the pagan temple of uh, you know, important financial income. But it also said to the world, it proclaimed to the world that the Christians in Ephesus are not afraid of the pagan gods. Okay, a simple act had made a profound difference. And the question comes to every generation, and it is this, is what might it mean to be a fire bearer in our situation? Not conforming, but transforming today. As far as we know, the first century um, Christians didn't picket the temple with placards. As far as we know, they didn't get a law passed in their favor, but simply through what they did, over time and over time, then the Greek temple system collapsed and Christianity began to rise across that part of the world. Uh, here are four questions that I came across that I think are helpful in thinking through transformation in our own contexts. Um, I'll put them in Outlook, I think, so they are in there. The first question is, what is good in our culture that we can promote, protect, and celebrate? You know, we believe that, uh, that God created a world that in his own words were good. And uh, even after the fall and even after, you know, man's uh, fall away from God and the entry of sin, there is still good around in our world. There's goodness that remains. How can we find that? How can we promote that and celebrate that? What is good in our culture? The second question is well, what is missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute to? You know, we are created to be creative. Uh, you know, when something good is missing at a certain time or a certain place, you know, we should find ways to offer it to the world. And as we do that, God is glorified and the world is helped. What is missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute? A third question, what is evil in our culture that we can stop? We know the God of the Bible hates evil. Uh, and throughout history, we read of courageous Christians standing up who have worked to stop about things that have destroyed, things that have deceived. You know, think of the Wilberforces and all the rest of it. You know, what is broken in our world and in our culture that we can restore? Because ultimately we reflect the gospel most clearly when what has been damaged by sin is restored to what it was originally intended to be, God's purposes. So what is good? What is missing? What is evil? 
and oh, I'm jumping ahead and what is broken in our culture and then what and how can we engage with that and I think there's for this next part really I just want to unpack a whole variety so they're a bit random but a variety of ways of how you can get involved in anything okay that's the point I'm trying to make you can get involved in every sector of life in some way the world needs Christian entrepreneurs I think of a guy called Ben Cooley. You may have seen recently with um, uh, Hope for Justice. Uh, he's a guy who got together a group of people, uh, ex-police officers mainly and others, and started a team working to work with modern-day slavery and modern-day trafficking. They set up a team in Birmingham, set up teams in other cities across the UK. Young guy um, with, with a great idea and an absolute heart to commit to that. We've got our very own Richard Beard, who was at the first service who works with Jericho, a, a local social enterprise working with long-term unemployed and helping them through building projects and printing and catering projects to engage them uh, in that. There are many people across uh, this congregation who are involved in, in similar things like that. We might think of those who've set up Christian pregnancy advice uh, centers, crisis centers, who offer support and information and creative options uh, for, for women and recovery programs uh, as well but you know for, for those facing unplanned pregnancies or unwanted pregnancies or even recovering from the aftermath of abortion supporting them in that still waters in Kings Heath uh, do that and there are, there are over a hundred across the UK because people have gone and stepped out and set something up in that often people have seen very little impact by protesting but have decided that we're going to help individuals who are actually facing the realities of their challenges and their choices I read uh, of a, a pro-life organization in the US, just thinking creatively. Um, it's called Save the Stalks. And uh, rather than protesting outside abortion clinics, um, they decided to raise the money to buy an ultrasound machine and a bus and to train some specialists up to be able to use that equipment. Um, and, and what they do is they, they help women who are you know, not really gone through things to, to actually have a picture an ultrasound picture of the unborn child and they reckon that something like 90% of, of women when they see a picture of their own child seriously reconsider their options and their choices in that situation another huge area uh, many people involved in the church in education uh, I came across this quote on education by Albert Einstein which I thought would provoke uh, us a little bit education is what remains after, what, after one has forgotten what one has learned at school. You might agree with that, you might disagree with that, but it's definitely thought-provoking. Um, T.S. Eliot uh, wrote about the aims of education, uh, quite a famous book for educationalists. Um, and he says in that, he says, imagine you come across a, a new mysterious machine. Two things you'll ask, what does it for? And how does it do it? And similarly, he goes on and says, as we define education, we're, we're led to ask the question, uh, eventually, what is man? And to define the purpose of education, we're committed to the question, what is man for? What is it all about? And how we answer those questions will determine the underlying philosophy or theology of what is taught. So just to get our heads around this a little bit, think of an extreme situation in education. So I was thinking, an education regime set by ISIS, okay? We've come across that. And uh, the education system there is to educate people 
to be terrorists in our eyes or in their eyes probably to be fighters against the unbelievers. Okay, that's how they see that. That's the education comes because of the philosophy of what we believe we're here for. North Korea, we might imagine uh, or find an education system but its main goal is to shape students to be committed to the state and that will shape how it does. They're extreme. Okay, but what is it in our culture? You know, any culture that's become detached from its real purpose will surely struggle to establish a solid vision for educational initiatives. So at one end of the social economic spectrum, for example, you've got all those um, people who may be living in poverty, uh, maybe there's high unemployment, maybe there might be a lot of family breakdown. People struggling to make ends meet are also therefore finding difficulty in articulating both to themselves and also to their children a compelling vision for learning and knowing and what it's all about. At the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, education is too often correlated with the accumulation of wealth. Get the right job, material things, comfortable retirement. Equally, what are we here for? It can be, it can be a wrong view that affects what our vision of education is about. And perhaps defining that purpose in your own head will help you to bring a coherent education system uh, to where you find yourself. I found it interesting this week to discover where the word university comes from. It's two words, unity and diversity. University. And the idea, or the original purpose of it, was that it, it brings unity and understanding in the diversity of human experience. But my guess is, most places have lost the sense of that or the purpose of that. So is school just a set of random subjects for your students um, or do we bring a sense of coherence to it, a sense of purpose to it, how it all connects together, what the meaning of it all is? Because actually as Christians we believe that to know about God's world is to begin to know about God himself. Um, we, know, we understand that to understand the technical stuff we also need to understand the moral stuff because there are plenty of people in this world who've done terrible atrocities who were highly educated, in inverted commas. What is education really about? Anyway, I'm not an educationalist, so I'll leave you with that question. Um, but it's a huge sector that we, where we bring transformation um, and uh, we pray for every single one of you that is engaged in any way in that. It's so important. Another area I, I mentioned, uh, heroic perseverance. Christians who are persevering faith despite the suffering they're going through or despite the disabilities that they face. It may be a parent of a severely handicapped child. It may be someone overcoming the pressure to abort a Down syndrome child or one of the other uh, prenatally diagnosed conditions. Or it could be somebody's a family or life that is turned upside down by a tragedy, by a family tragedy, and yet they continue in the faith. And we applaud each single one of them. We encourage you uh, in to keep the faith in all that you do. You know, the cloud of witnesses of heaven look down and applaud you in the situation that you find yourself in and the faith that you express. And a world looks on to see another kingdom, to see another love, to see another way of living. Uh, Chuck Colson, one of the President Nixon's kind of henchmen from the Watergate scandal, um, served seven months in prison. In that time he became a Christian, went on to found prison ministries uh, across the world. But he said this about his autistic grandson Max. 
I can tell you this, the former Nixon hatchet man has learned more about love from Max than anyone else. You know, we could mention singles in our world. Singles who, who choose to live uh, a life of celibacy um, because that is where they see their identity in God, not in their sexuality. Who've understood that their deep identity is in Christ as a child of God. You know, in a world that's reduced identity to sexuality and claims that all we have to do to have a thriving, flourishing life is to feed our appetite and inclinations. Not conforming, but transforming in how we live. I want to mention the arts. Um, I, I came across a Christian guy who is trying to work through how do I do comedy in a secular environment, you know, in the secular world of comedy? How can I be restorative and redemptive in that situation? And he really wrestled with this question because he said there's a never-ending dilemma um, in his life between battling with a secular mentality which uh, doesn't necessarily want what he's selling, they don't like his jokes, uh, and a religious mentality that doesn't want it either. So how do I do this? He says, when people are comfortable with dark comedy that has coarse language and gratuitous sexual references, and that's what people want, it's difficult to pull back people back into the light. But rather than flee, he decided to engage with that and took up the challenge. And he says, the people who got it first were the other comedians. He said, because they knew how difficult it was to make someone laugh without being crude. But they saw him how, how to do that. He said, well, eventually one of them became a Christian. He, he said, I shared my faith in a little bit, but he says, the thing I think that impressed him more than anything was simply my commitment uh, as a Christian, my commitment to God more than actually what I talked about him. Not conforming, but transforming, prayerfully transforming. Another guy called Carl, an upper management guy uh, in a very large media company. And he says, the company does a lot of good, uh, but it also markets a large number of violent films and music that uh, kind of feed brutality and bitterness. And he waited patiently and he prayed for opportunity to bring some sort of Christian influence into the company. And eventually an opening arose um, for him to question graciously but firmly uh, what was going on and its policies regarding its media content. First of all, he got quite a rebuff back from people saying, well, you know, artists have got free expression and we, we can't challenge that. He could have backed off, he says, but he continued and he sent a memo to the chairman saying that while every artist is, has the right to free expression, uh, as a company, we are not bound to distribute it. And he never heard anything back, he said, but mysteriously over the coming months, the percentage of violent uh, material and content accepted by the media division began to decrease. And uh, just graciously conforming, not conforming, but graciously transforming. Uh, there's another guy that I came across, a, a high-end painter in New York. He was part of the 9-11 um, uh, tragedy. Uh, caught up in the rubble of that. And his experience out of that, he, he started to paint uh, uh, art. And he's, as I say, he's a high-end. He's in some of the high-end galleries uh, in New York. And as a result of that, he's asked about the meaning of his paintings. And he's asked about the meaning of his life. And he's asked about how he can remain faithful as a Christian after what happened uh, in the midst of the rubble. In fact, one gallery owner said, while profoundly Christian works are usually shunned on in our circles, here these pieces resonate with outsiders. He is a profound believer and I am totally secular. But he's like a professor to me. His paintings allow for skeptics like me to do one thing that secularism has labeled a sign of weakness, to hope. 
one of the reviewers, the idea of forging a new kind of art, as he calls it, about hope, healing, redemption, refuge, while maintaining visual sophistication and intellectual integrity is a growing movement. See, somebody just painting a picture, transforming situations. What is good in our culture that we can promote, that we can protect, that we can celebrate? What is missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute? What is evil in our culture that we can stop? What is broken in our culture that we can restore? And really, there is no sector that is no go for God. Okay? Anything, anywhere, there are ways to prayerfully engage with God in that. So we're saved from something, but we're saved for something. And we're sent out to be restorers of every area of life and culture. Jesus said in his great commission, as you go, or wherever you are going, okay, wherever it is, the places that you go to in the week, the spaces you find yourself in, the relationships that you engage with, the needs of those people, the needs of those places, and asking the question, what might we do to join God's work here? God is already at work here. How can we join that? The Protestant reformers understood vocation not just as occupation. It was more than just occupation, but as anywhere and everywhere that we go. The different situations, the different relationships, all ordained by God for us. That's, that's the view that they had very strongly. And so on one hand, what skills and gifts and abilities do you have? What do you love doing? You know, what makes you come alive? As Eric Little said, you know, when I run, I feel his pleasure. What is it? How has God made you? How has God wired you up? On the other hand, what is the specific brokenness of our culture that you encounter? What are the particular evils of this time and place? You know, what breaks our heart? Uh, what are the trends of culture that lead people away from faith? And we can't do it all. But where are places and where are gifts and abilities and where we see brokenness intersect then that is very often the place where we hear God's voice calling us to meet that particular need. Uh, somebody put it like this. He says, usually there's the kind of work that you most need to do in this world and there's the work that the world most needs to have you do in this world. He says, if you really get a kick out of your work, you've presumably met requirement A. But if your work is designing cigarette adverts, chances are you've missed requirement B. On the other hand, if your work is being a doctor in a leper colony, you've probably met requirement B. But if most of the time you're bored and depressed by it, you've probably missed requirement A. And probably you're not doing a great job at it either. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And so these are questions that we can continually and prayerfully ask ourselves um, to find that place where our lives will thrive as we do that. But the secret is to start small. The real question is not whether we can in fact change the world, but will we respond to the next opportunity that comes our way? Will we act and whatever we do, will we do it well? Someone else said, if you want to change the world, start by cleaning your room. <laughs> and uh, it's great advice if you're a parent, isn't it? Um, I, hang on, I've got a bit of paper down there. I came across this, it's um, King Seath, um Neighborhood thing, it's like an email goes around. They're, it's usually trades people or trying to get some business. This one just says, hello, I'm James. And with my small group of helpers, I've been doing work for people in my neighborhood. 
that they need help with or can't find the time to do themselves. If you have any unfinished jobs or projects or even an overgrown garden, we can help with a group of up to five college students who have been doing this for the last couple of months. We can help and make it happen. I assume it's voluntary, but um, what a great way just to engage with their community. I'll finish with this. Mark Twain. 20 years from now, you will be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the things you did. So throw off the bow lines, sail away from the safe harbor, catch the trade winds in your sails, explore, dream, and discover. You know, if the first century Christians hadn't stepped out in faith and done what God had called them to do in the face of hardship and opposition, none of us would be here today. We owe it totally to them in stepping into that. Let's pray together. As uh, it says in Revelation 21.5, you are making all things new. Lord, we thank you for that statement. We pray that we would know it, believe it, and live in the truth of it. You've paid the price to redeem this fallen world. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to just gently reveal to each one of us what we're looking at in our world through the lens of the world's culture and not through your kingdom. Help us to see it with your eyes and give us the grace to make the changes, to put things right and to engage with you, Lord, in what you're doing in the places that we find ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.